0: Amen. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Great to be with you today. Thank you so much to our worship team for leading us uh, today. And uh, I'm Jamie, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here at Seven Oaks. And so uh, if you're new with us today, a special welcome to you. Um, uh, It's actually a good day to be new today in our church because uh, we have a newcomer's welcome right after this service. And I'm telling you this now because I'm always told to, to do this at the benediction, and I forget every time. So you need to remember, there is a newcomer's welcome right after the service. So if you'd like to join us, just go out of that door and follow the signs, and you'll go into the staff lunchroom. We'll have coffee on. We'll hang out for 20 minutes or so and just get to know each other. So uh, that's coming up after the service. Um, One other thing uh, just to share with you is we have um, a course coming up really soon at the end of this month uh, called Reading Your Bible Better Course. And uh, many of you know Mike Evans, and Mike's preached here a couple of times, and uh, Mike has run this a couple of times before as well, and it's a great course. Uh, Many of us struggle with reading the Bible. We don't know where to start. We don't know, you know, good techniques for reading it and so on. We can all sharpen the way we read it, and so if you're interested... Um, that is starting up on, uh, it says January 31. I thought it was January 30th, but, uh, but anyway, um, what, it, it's the Tuesday nearest to January 31. Maybe that is, I don't have my calendar on me, but anyway, um, it's, it's on that Tuesday. Uh, starting at seven o'clock. It'll be right here in the chapel. And I think it runs for about seven, seven weeks or about seven Tuesdays. So if you'd like to join, it'd be great for you to register. You can do that online. That's the easiest way to do it. Or call the office or drop into the office on your way out today uh, and register for the course. We're uh, looking forward to, to that. So a couple of years ago, in uh, January of 2022, we uh, began the year with a series on 1 Corinthians. Do you remember that? Cast your mind so far back. Well, we're going to begin this year with a study of 2 Corinthians, the second letter that Paul wrote. Um, but before I get into the text, and we're only going to look at the first two verses today, we're going to get into the meat of it next week. But before we get there, I'm going to spend a fair bit of time with you this morning doing some introduction and some context, Okay. And, and this is really, really important. And if you've been at Seven Oaks long enough, you'll know that I place a really, really high value on context. And I'm not the only one. Lots of people do. Lots of you do. Um, and the reason is, is because understanding the background to a, a letter of the Bible or any book of the Bible, understanding some of the history and some of the cultural climate and the politics of the time and, and the religious Uh, expressions of the time, that kind of thing can actually really help us to understand the Bible. Because what happens is sometimes we read it as though it was written, you know, 20 years ago, and we interpret it. And what would have been way better is for us to actually understand the context in which it was actually written 2,000 years ago, if it's a New Testament or more, if it was the old, understand some of that context, understand what was meant by the author at that time. And then we drag it forward 2,000 years into today and say, well, it meant that then this is what it means today. And, and it's not true with every single verse of the Bible, but much of it we can actually get in a mess of understanding some of it if we don't understand the context. So I'm going to spend some time doing that with you this morning. And I'm going to illustrate it this morning, the importance of context, in the best way Jamie knows how. And this is going to be fun. Well, it's going to be fun for me. It may switch the rest of you off, but that's okay. Uh, You may remember back in September of last year, we began a teaching series called the Five Big Questions or Five Big Questions. Do you remember that? And we were looking at some apologetic questions, some of the questions that people raise against the Christian faith, and we're kind of digging in to try to uh, have a crack at some of those. And uh, you may remember that on the first one of those that I preached, I was preaching on the subject of evil. Uh, Why does a good and holy God allow evil in the world? And, and I made a little joke, a little quip at the beginning of that sermon where I said, it's kind of like holding up a Bayern Munich poster and saying, why would God allow this evil? And, and it was just a little joke. It was just a little quip. And uh, if you don't know, Bayern Munich is a European football team, happens to be the team that Pastor Zach supports and follows. And uh, Zach didn't like that very much. <clears throat> and you remember that the next week when he was preaching, he kind of lashed out in petulant anger. <laughs> and, uh, you know, bless his heart. And he, he decided, you know, what I'm going to do is I, I'm going I'm to take eight minutes or so, and I'm going to share with the church family uh, why for me, why for Zach, uh, Bayern Munich of such a better football team than Manchester United, which happens to be the team that I follow. And so, Zach decided to do this, and he had uh, what we call in England a strop. Um, It's a temper tantrum. (laughs) And uh, so, uh, you may recall that the next time I preached, I took the high road of maturity in class. (laughs) Well, for the sake of the context today, I'm going to step off the high road for a moment. This is going to be so much fun. Um, one of the points that Zach was trying to make was that Bayern Munich, well, he put some statistics up, and one of the stats he put up was that you know Bayern Munich are so much better than Manchester United because they've won more league titles than Manchester United. Well, we all know that statistics, raw statistics, need interpretation, and they need context, and that's what I'm going to help you understand. Now, the thing is, for Zach, is um, he was a little bit of a cheeky fellow, because. He knew he was speaking to a Canadian audience and probably thought to himself, you know what, by and large, most Canadians, you know, don't know a great deal about European football. They might know a little bit, and some of you may know a lot, but probably in an audience this size, most of you don't know. So I can throw up stats, and they're going to be none the wiser. Well, aren't you glad that I'm here to give you some context and offer you a little wisdom? Zach said that Bayern Munich had won 33 league titles to Manchester United's 20. And so, raw numbers, it sounds like he's right. But without offering you some context. And the context is, it's a little bit like comparing apples and oranges. You just can't compare those two things. Because, you know, Manchester United play in the English Premier League, which is the best, most competitive, most difficult uh, football uh league on the planet and the german bundesliga if i was being generous might be the fourth best league in europe if i was being generous but it's quite possibly the fifth and maybe worse Uh, zach would uh, disagree now i know what you're thinking jamie's biased of course he's going to say the english premier league's the best well if you don't want to take my word for it let's take the word of a famous german football person Ralph Ranić, coming up on the screen for you, Uh, he was a a coach for just a little while for Manchester United, and this is what he said, if I compare the German Bundesliga with the English Premier League, we've, that's Manchester United, have played now Norwich and Newcastle and Burnley, three of the bottom teams, but they would never be the bottom teams in the Bundesliga with their physicality, with their speed, with the way they play, with the emotions in their stadiums. Well said, Ralph. So that's a German saying that. If you still maybe struggle to, to believe me, uh, I'm going I'm to see how much you really do know about uh, English football. Uh, if you know, uh, shout it out. If you don't know, take a guess. How many different English Premier League teams do you think have won the English Premier League in the last 11 years? Any ideas? Sorry? Six. Not Six not six. Any other guesses? Four, not four. It's right between those two. It's five. Five different teams in 11 years. Well, that sounds competitive. That sounds like it's hard to win. That sounds like it goes down to the wire. It probably goes down to the last day. Who's going to win it this year? Who's going to win it this year? How many German teams do you think has won the Bundesliga in the last 11 years? One. One team. One team. Bayern Munich, surprise, surprise. Well, that doesn't sound very competitive, does it? That sounds, quite frankly, a little bit boring. It sounds like it's a put you to sleep kind of a deal. It also sounds like winning 20 Premier League titles is a lot more challenging than winning 33 Bundesliga titles when you don't have any competition. So you see, Church family, if we hold up raw statistics, without context, without explanation, we can get really muddled in what is actually really true. And so it's the same with the scriptures. Sometimes we need to understand some context in order to properly understand the Bible. Wasn't that a great illustration? (laughs) That was so much fun, man. I think I'm going to go home. I've had fun. I'm good. I feel really good now. The letter of Second Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth, and so what we're going to, and First Corinthians of course was as well. And so what we're going to do is just spend a little bit of time on understanding Corinth, on understanding some of the movements of of Paul. So uh, coming up on the screen for you is a map uh, that is ancient Greece, and uh, it's called Achaia in the bottom there. Actually, Macedonia is just to the north of it. It's all Greece now in the, on, on a modern map, and just across the Aegean Sea there you get Turkey. Uh, you get kind of the western coast of Turkey, which is where Ephesus is. You can't see it, but that's kind of important for us later. And, and, and Corinth was a really, really prosperous city. It was a really wealthy city. It was the third city by the, time, by the Roman times. It was the third most influential city behind Rome and Alexandria. So it was a big city. It was wealthy. It was prosperous. There was a lot of trade that went through there. Lots of boats would stop. You know, lots of taxes collected and that kind of thing. So it was a wealthy city. It was pagan. There were shrines to different gods all over the place. There was a huge temple on the high point of Corinth called the Acro Corinth, which was dedicated to Aphrodite, uh, the goddess. Uh, the city was destroyed in 146 BC when it was Greek by the Romans, and it lay, uh, lay kind of derelict for about 100 years until 44 BC when Julius Caesar comes on, uh, on the scene, and he rebuilds it. And it becomes prosperous again. And in fact, a lot of wealthy Romans from the city of Rome, a lot of military leaders and so on, would actually retire to Corinth. It was a wealthy, prosperous place uh, once again. And uh, quickly rebuilt, Uh, if you can bring up the next image for us. Uh, This today, this is today, that is the uh, canal that goes through that thin little isthmus. Um, okay, and there's a canal there today. That wasn't started until about the 1800s. So if you wanted to cross that isthmus before, if you go to the next uh, screen, uh, they actually laid rails across that isthmus. I think it's only about six miles long or something, four, four to six miles long. And, and what they would do is slaves would drag ships across the land to the other side. And so it was kind of like the ancient equivalent of the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal. And so once again, when this was happening during the Roman times, think of all the ships that were coming because it was way better than to go around the more dangerous, rocky kind of coastline. And uh, so once again, it became a really, really prosperous uh, city. Uh, They reestablished that temple. In the first century, it was said to be uh, serviced by a thousand female slaves turned temple prostitutes. So you can imagine the kind of um, spiritual, sexual spiritual oppression over Corinth. Um, it was uh, the place where they held the Isthmian Games in Corinth, second only to the Olympics. Uh, the sea god Poseidon was worshipped there. So it gives you a bit of a flavor and a bit of a picture of what Corinth was like. Wealthy, prominent, was Greek, became Roman, pagan, lots of gods and temples. Huge sexual license, indulgent, lax, fine if you're wealthy, terrible if you're a slave. That was the picture of Corinth. Think now of First Corinthians. When we studied it a couple of years ago, if you've read it before, think of the content of First Corinthians. Some things might be going off in your mind saying, oh, that's why they had such that's, that problem in, in the Corinthian church. It was Corinthian culture being dragged into the church. Okay? So that's 1 Corinthians. Paul shows up in this city in Acts chapter 18, and uh, he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla who who become co-workers in the gospel. They're tent makers just like him, so they let him stay in their home. He goes to the synagogue, which is pretty typical. Paul would usually do that. Tries to argue with the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't want to know about it. So he turns to the Gentiles. Next door to the synagogue lived Titius Justus, who was a a God-fearer, and it was from his home then he began to preach the gospel again. This was his base of operations, and he witnessed the people. They came to faith, and that is the birth of the Corinthian church right there in the home of Titius Justus. and uh, Paul uh, then um, is there for about 18 months, I think it is, about a year and a half he's there uh, building that faith community. Now, the movements of Paul and the letters that Paul wrote, you might think are actually pretty simple. We can see in Acts how many times he went there. We can see in the Bible there's two letters written. It's actually not simple at all. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer you a little bit of a reconstruction. Scholars actually think there were four different letters, possibly five written to, to Corinth. Only two were inspired scripture. The others were just letters. And there were various visits of Paul, and it's hard to kind of reconstruct it all, but I'm going to try to do it for you this morning. So I'm going to ask you to lean in with me. This, you don't have to remember this. You're not going to be able to remember it because we're going to go through it pretty quickly. You don't have to remember this stuff. Uh, you don't even really need to care all that much about it. But the reason I'm going to share it with you is because it actually has something to do with context. It's actually going to help us understand 2 Corinthians. So you Ready? Here we go. I believe in you. So, Paul makes a first visit to Corinth. I just described that in Acts chapter 18. He, 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 he fi- founds the church there, and he stays there for about a year and a half, and that was around about AD 51. In AD 53, so Paul had now left Corinth. He'd left people behind to be leaders of the church. Apollos was a leader for some of that time. If you remember 1 Corinthians, they were a divided church. Some were saying, we're for Paul and we're for Apollos. They were fighting over leaders. Apollos was left in the church there as a leader. That was his time. Paul is now off and he's on his third missionary journey, and he lands in Ephesus just across the Aegean Sea, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and here's Corinth, and here's Macedonia. And he's in Ephesus, and from Ephesus, he writes a letter to uh, the church and we don't have that letter. Uh, it's lost to history. It wasn't part of inspired scripture. But to prove to you there was a letter written before, coming up is 1 Corinthians uh, 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons. So there was a letter written before 1 Corinthians. So that was the first letter he wrote. And that letter was actually misunderstood by the Corinthians. They, they, they didn't get it. They didn't necessarily like it very much. And uh, Paul learns about their misunderstanding, and he learns about all kinds of problems going on in the church from Chloe's people, this group of people from Corinth. He learns about that, way he's in Ephesus, and he's like, oh, they didn't understand my letter. Oh, my gosh, all these things are going on in the church. Uh, all these terrible things uh, are happening uh, like people are suing each other in the church, the rich are leaving the poor out of communion. Uh, there's all kinds of sexual immorality going on. There's etc. 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 Culture of Corinth in the church. If you've read First Corinthians, you know that stuff. So to clear up the misunderstanding and to address some of these issues in the church, Paul writes 1 Corinthians. So he's written a first letter. It's misunderstood. He hears about it and all the kinds of issues, so he sends 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, and it lands in Corinth, and they receive it, and so on, um, but it didn't resolve all of the issues. In fact, some people got their backs up. Who does Paul think he is? He's not our pastor anymore. He left and went. Like, what right does he get, have to tell us stuff, right? So some of the people got their back up. And so Paul decides, I better go and make a personal visit again, because my letters obviously are not working very well. And so he sails likely straight from Ephesus, he lands in Corinth, and he has a terrible time. It's a conflictual meeting. There is arguments, it's vitriolic, it's conflictual, it's, it's not good. And so coming up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 1, so I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. So that's the reference to that painful visit, conflictual visit, that issue-laden visit uh, that he made. Paul ups and leaves. He's like, obviously me being around is not helping. Uh, I'm getting out of here. And so he, he heads back to Ephesus, and he writes a third letter. We don't have that letter. It's lost to history. And he writes this uh, third letter, and this third letter is, is a difficult one for Paul to write. It grieves him to write it. He didn't enjoy writing it. It was a letter where he was smacking their hand about stuff. He was telling them off. Like, you know, when I visited, it was so conflicted. But but I, I guess for Paul, it's probably a little bit like, you know, when you're in an argument with somebody and you're just not getting anywhere and you think this is just terrible, there's too much heated emotion, I need to go. And then later you write them an email or something when everything's calmed down and they have a time to read it and process it and then maybe gather together. It was probably a bit like that. I need to go, but I'm going to write another letter, and so uh, he does, and he sends it off with Titus, and Titus carries it over to Corinth. Back to the Book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, there's a riot in Ephesus. All right, you you may recall that if you've read the book. There's a riot in Ephesus, and Paul has to skip town. So Paul suddenly leaves Ephesus and what he does is he heads north up to a place called Troas where he's going to catch a boat across to Macedonia and then come back down to Corinth. But he'd, he'd purpose to meet Titus in Troas. Why does he want to meet Titus? Well, he wants to know how did the letter go, Titus? Did it help? Did it just pour more gasoline on the fire? Did, did, the, did they hate me? And he gets to Troas and Titus isn't there. And he gets worried about Titus. And what happened to Titus? Did they, did they tire and feather him? Did, did, you know, did he get arrested by the Roman soldiers somehow? Like he gets worried. So he gets on a boat, heads over to Macedonia and phew, Titus is there. And Titus gives him a bit of a mixed response. The first thing he does is he says, you know what, Paul, it was way better that you wrote that letter. In fact, it cut some of them to the heart and they repented, praise the Lord. But you also need to know there's still a faction they're opposed to you in the church. And actually, there's some false teachers that have moved into the church. So it's kind of a good and bad thing. And so then, from Macedonia, he writes the letter of Second Corinthians, and he sends it to Corinth, and then in Acts chapter 20, he visits them for a third time. So that's a lot of information, uh, most of which you won't remember, and that's okay, Uh, But it's really, really, really important to help us understand the purpose and the setting of the letter. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was Paul the pastor, Paul the beloved pastor. He was the church founder. He's the guy who led many of us to Jesus. He, He was the beloved guy that led my family to Jesus. We love him. And when he wrote, he still had a certain amount of authority so he wrote 1 Corinthians from the place of being their kind of wandering pastor who wrote back to them and said, hey, I'm so sorry you misunderstood uh, stuff. He, you know, let me try to clear that up for you. And by the way, I've heard this, this, and this is going on in the church. You need to stop it. So that was 1 Corinthians. But um, for 2 Corinthians, he's, he's Paul, the one we all had problems with. We had this really conflictual visit with, and now we're not really sure. Before he was our beloved pastor, now we're not even sure if he should be called an apostle. Now we're not sure we even uh, like him anymore when he's writing 2 uh, Corinthians. Uh, he came off from that really difficult visit, and he ran off, and his departure was seen as weakness, like he had no backbone, like he had no courage. Another thing that happened, as I said, is more false teachers rolled into town, and they started to cast aspersions on Paul and his ministry, and we'll get to that in Second 2 Corinthians. Thankfully, though, we got the report from Titus. So when he writes 2 Corinthians from Macedonia and gets set to send it, it's a completely different situation than 1 Corinthians. He's got a different relationship with them. And what we're going to see is we're going to see him defend his own apostleship quite a a bit. And here's just just a really quick way to help you understand why on earth is Jamie going on about all this background. So here's why. You can read 2 Corinthians without knowing the background... And you can say, why does he keep defending himself so much? Why doesn't he spend some time teaching us on the Trinity? We don't understand that one. Like, why doesn't he spend more time doing this? Come on, help us out a little bit, Paul. He keeps going on about the defense of his apostleship. What's going on? Well, now you get it. <laughs> he had to defend himself in order to get a, play, uh, kind of a platform from which they would listen. We're going to see him talk about suffering. Because some in the church saw him as weak and unimpressive. And you know what, that Paul, he suffers a lot. How can anyone call him a spirit-filled apostle if he suffers so much? Obviously, he's just weak. And Paul's going to say, oh, no, 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 no. Suffering is the mark of an apostle. You can be spirit-filled and you will probably suffer more and so we're going to see kind of uh, that. He's going to talk about forgiveness. He's going to talk about consolation in affliction against the background of some of this stuff. We're going to see him rejoice at the repentance of many. We're going to see him confront those false teachers and call on them to repent. He's calling them to the spirit-filled life. He's calling them to properly represent Jesus. So that's the background. That's the context of the letter. And now we're just going to read a couple of verses. I'm going to spend a short time uh, with those verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the church of God that's in Corinth, including all the saints throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's just the intro. It's just the greeting. And I want to just touch on a few things here. First of all, he starts out by calling himself an apostle, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He often calls himself an apostle in letter uh, 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 sorry, openings, but not all the time. In fact, in some of his earliest letters, in First and 2 Thessalonians, he doesn't call himself anything. In, uh, in Philippians, he calls himself a servant. In Romans, a servant called to be an apostle. In Philemon, he calls himself a prisoner. Why does he call himself these different things? Well, you can sort of trace, you could try to trace some developing self-understanding of Paul, as you, if you understand the letters chronologically, maybe. That's maybe helpful. Though often what he calls himself is intimately related to his message. So in 2 Corinthians, it's, I'm an apostle. You need to know, I'm an apostle. Now we know the background. We understand why he wants to be clear right up front on who he is. It is a church that is challenging his leadership, who's been infiltrated by teachers, casting aspersions on Paul, who have a group that are opposed to his leadership. In a letter where he has to defend his apostleship, right up front, he's going to say, I'm an apostle. You need to know that. Maybe if he'd said, I'm a servant, they'd be like, oh yeah, Paul the weak, Right? If he if called himself you know, a prisoner, they'd be like, well, he wasn't a prisoner at the time, but if he had, it would be like, well, of course he's a prisoner. Yeah, of course, it's Paul. He's like, no, no, I'm an apostle. And an apostle in the New Testament early church sense was a leader who had um, borne born witness to the resurrection, so had actually seen the risen Jesus, which he did on the road to Damascus. Somebody who had a calling on their life, who had a leadership mantle that they wore, who who was spreading the gospel and in whose ministry the grace of God was evident. That's an apostle, and he says, I'm one of those. Whatever you guys think, whatever those false teachers are telling you, this is who I am. And not only an apostle, but an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's some trump cards right there from Paul, hey? I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, by the way. His way of saying, you need to understand actually, that I'm an apostle of Jesus, and it's by God's will. So if you have a problem with me, take it up with a big man. To the church of God in Corinth, he writes, and to all the saints through Achaia. Something's changed since 1 Corinthians. If you read that intro, if you read the opening to that letter, it says to the church of God in Corinth. Here it says to the church of God in Corinth and all the saints in Achaia. It's like saying to the church in Abbotsford, or to the church in Abbotsford and the saints in the rest of the Fraser Valley, because Achaia was that whole region. It's important, and it's significant. There's maybe only a couple of years between the writing of these two letters, and what it does is it tells us of the power of the gospel to spread across the world. The early church was a time of great missionary expansion and we only have small snippets in the book of Acts and the rest in the New Testament, we know that there was a church in Corinth, there's a church in Philippi, there's a church in Thessalonica, there was a church in Rome, there was a church in Colossae, and we know these things because there's entire letters of the New Testament written to those churches. But if we dig a little bit deeper, we also know there was churches in Laodicea and Sardis and Thyatira and Pergamum and Smyrna and Philadelphia, and we know that because primarily the book of Revelation, at the beginning, there's little letters to them. So there's probably churches in other places as well that aren't mentioned. There's churches probably all over Achaia, to the church of God in Corinth, and to the region of Achaia. I don't know about you, but this profoundly encourages me. And it encouraged me because God works and fulfills his purposes even when we're messy and broken. That was a messed up church. Corinth was a messed up church, a very, very broken church. And I suppose if God were to wait until churches were perfectly healthy and perfectly obedient, nothing would ever happen, <laughs> right? It's not an excuse to stay in a mess. We're called to work hard, to be the people of God in community together, to be the best we can, to be sanctified and Christ-like and all of those things. But it also tells us and affirms to us that he will work through broken vessels. He's that good and he loves the world that much. So, friends, if you've been waiting to get everything in your life cleaned up before finally you're ready to go and do what God has asked you to do, forget it. You'll never get there. There'll always be a reason, won't there? And an excuse. Well, I've got to do that. i got to... No, 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 no. We don't wait until we get everything cleaned up, otherwise, the gospel will never go anywhere. Work hard at your salvation, work hard at your sanctification and your growth, absolutely. But it's time to step out into obedience and watch what God will do and to obey Him. That's often what happens when people talk to me about baptism. They say, Pastor, I'm just not ready to get baptized. Yet. I go this in my life, I've got to sort out. I'm like, no, that means you are right. You are ready. Jump in the tank quick. If you wait until you get everything cleaned up, you'll never get baptized. Baptism isn't about making you perfect or being perfect. Baptism is actually about a declaration that the old me's gone and the new me's come out of the water and I'm in Jesus. And I may be messy still, but Jesus is working in me and I'm publicly declaring who I am. I'm putting a stake in the ground. So if you haven't been baptized yet, come and talk to me. We would love to baptize you. Actually, we'd love to do some baptisms at Easter this year. So if you're interested, seriously, come talk to me. And verse two, we're gonna close up here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul affectionately describes God as Father and obediently understands Jesus as Lord. And I just wanna draw our attention to these two things as we close out in application and reflection. Paul understood God to be Father, and so I'd like to ask you at the beginning of 2024, how well or poorly are you doing in terms of connecting with God as father. Because there are all kinds of religions and belief systems out there where the notion of God is something that is far and distant and aloof and religious observance is just about practicing certain rites and rituals to appease the gods, and there's no assurance, and, and we're just hoping we've, we've done enough good and, 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 and not too much bad that maybe we'll be accepted by God. One of the amazingly unique things about Christianity is that God always comes down. He doesn't stay aloof. He came down to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. He came down to visit with Abraham. He came down to wrestle with Jacob. He came down as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud to lead the people through the wilderness. He came down to inhabit the temple, uh, the tabernacle first and then the temple. God continues to come down. He came down supremely in the the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came down again on the day of Pentecost as tongues of fire. And he will come down again as the person of Jesus Christ in his victory in the second coming. And the book of Revelation says that God will come down once again to inhabit the new earth. God keeps coming down. We, we couldn't keep him up there if we tried. He wants to come down because he wants to be with us. And he wants intimacy and closeness with his church. He wants to walk with you. God is close, closer than we think. And he wants to take up residence in your life every day. And so are you, are you awake to the truth that God is close? Or are you just too busy with life? Is your faith just rote practice? Do you come to a gathering like this with with an expectation that God might meet with you this morning? Because you know that you're one encounter with Jesus away from some answer to your prayer or some dramatic life change, or do you just come with the same kind of attitude you do, go to the grocery store or go to the mall or go to work or whatever? Do you come with expectancy to meet with the one who wants that intimacy with you God is close. Do you perceive it? And finally, Jesus is called Lord. And I'd like to ask you at the beginning of 2024, how are you doing with submitting to Christ's Lordship in your life? Are you living in radical obedience? Are you listening to his instructions and following him? And not just the instructions that you see, or or rather both the instructions you see in the Bible in terms of how you should be living and speaking and acting, but also the more personal revelations that might be specific to you that you may be discerning. Are you submitting some of your time and resources to his purposes? Are you living an obedient life and submitting to his functional lordship in your life? It's okay just to have it as an idea, as a theological concept, but is it functionally true? Is it actually true in your life? Or are you living your own life, following your own ways, calling the shots, making the calls, and then offering a polite bow to God on a Sunday morning? Does your obedience boil down to an occasional check-in living your life and adding a bit of Jesus. So, new year, new you, or new year, new intimacy with God, new radical obedience to Jesus. It's up to you. Amen. Amen, worship team.